Hi there, this is Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation, and this is the Space For You podcast, podcast dedicated to the men and women who make today's space adventure possible, whether they've captured our history or been a part of that history or starting to make their own history in today's space program, we want to bring those stories to you because the space program is something that is for all of our benefits. Today I'm joined by Michael Solori who is an accomplished, and accomplished is an understatement, portrait and documentary photographer. Uh, His work literally has spanned the globe, and I will even say the universe in many many perspectives. Uh, You have seen his work in any number of museums, but one of the great outlets for photography is National Geographic, where his work has been some of the most popular items that National Geographic has showcased. Again, major newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, as well as the Smithsonian Magazine, the Huffington Post, and literally publications around the globe. We're fortunate to have someone of his talent talking to us because Michael's work really has captured both people, action, and what is happening in space in some very creative ways. But Michael, before we get into your space photography, Tell us a little bit about your start as a photographer. Sure. Good morning. (laughs) My start as a photographer was unintended. I had gone to college to be a planetary geologist. That's really what I wanted to do. And um, visually, it would work. The math certainly wasn't exactly cut out for me. And um, I think I discovered that um, photography was more fun to get into and explore um, people in place. So went on for the degree of economics and then went to Rochester Institute of Technology and I earned a Master of Fine Arts degree in photography and that was really my introduction to photography not as a more technical medium but looking at it as a fine art and so my studies involved the the history of photography and looking at its impact visually whether it was you know history here in the the US uh, in Europe uh, and certainly around the world so my journeys have gone from you know, I, I moved to Brazil. That's where I really began as a photographer. Uh, a lot of magazines, and that provided me an enormous door to travel the world. I mean, it was often amazing assignments throughout uh, Brazil, Europe, India, places like that. That was the beginning. That was really the beginning of it, though. The space, space had always been uh, in the back of my mind, particularly since I grew up during the, um, you know, the race to space. And... Uh, I think in the back of my head it was always that I wasn't seeing enough. There's something missing uh, in the photography that I would see, you know, whether it was the newspapers or Life magazine. Television had its own particular approach, but that was that was the seminal beginning. It's an interesting phrase that you use, though, about something that was missing in the photography and that. And, and so, as we go to get into your career, and you talked about growing up during the space age. When you look at the early photos of the space program and the astronauts in the the silver suits and the early pictures of the Earth, and again, when you take a look at those astronauts and the spacecraft and what they were doing, what do you see from a photographic perspective, and what what do you think was missing? Considering the era, which was essentially the 60s, um, remember, we're in an era of of three uh, television networks. Newspapers were extraordinarily abundant. And the major magazines were Life or Time, Newsweek, Houston's World Report, Net Geo. So 
I think you know, and the access, the way the media was being was was, was focused back then, is that you had groups that essentially had come of age uh, during the fifties. Some came out of World War II. Some came out of the Korean War. Some came out of um, you know, in the way they approached their photojournalism. And I suppose when I look, look back, it was the best that could be done at the time. But there were a few images that always stood out to me in retrospect, and these are images I discovered um, much, much later on as I studied the history of photography. And uh, with those images that stood out, there, Ralph Morse was one of the uh, life photographers, and, and Ralph was uh, really a product of the, the 40s and 50s. And the original Mercury crew really took to him, trusted him. That was ex- very, very important. And he was able to get, you know, I think fairly unscripted photographs considering the kind of environment that he was in. And that sort of gave us our, our preview. And a lot of his work certainly appeared in life, um, National Geographic, places like that. But I think what stood out to me, there was, uh, <clears throat> I think probably what set it off for me to want to explore more, there was a photograph, and I don't know who took it, um, black and white photograph of Al Shepard, there's two, uh, before his Silverado flight in May of 61. One was taken uh, in his suit-up room and it showed uh, his, his silver boots, his gloves. I think there was some tools that he was going to use. And it was just in his helmet, that right, in his helmet. And it set up on the table, and I thought, that's so extraordinarily beautiful because it showed a part of the whole. And it showed the, the very elements of what was needed to go for this very first ever jaunt into space, the orbital space. That was a photograph taken when he was already put into the uh, Mercury capsule. And he's very solemn. And I thought, that's wonderful. I mean, he's not mugging for the camera. And the photographer that took it respected that. And it, it caught a moment that was, to me, very, very human. And he knew that, you know, this was, this was the time to light the candle, as he said. And, uh, but you can tell by the expression, this was something important. And it also meant that, you know, who knows what was going to happen. So that's Mercury and certainly part of Gemini. But... What about the Apollo era pictures? Do, do the things that you thought may have been missing in that early era, does, do the Apollo era pictures capture some of that? What are some things that stand oh, out for you? Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to discount, I mean, a lot of the things I think that Ralph and other photographers pulled off that with were pretty remarkable. I mean, there's a, there's a launch shot uh, when John Glenn went up in February 62, and Ralph set this up on a very long lens shot at Old Cape Canaveral. And that captured a launch, probably one of the best launch pictures of, of the time because of the way he angled it. And he had time to set it up and got the approvals, you know, from various people. But there were also results of those missions. John Glenn made the very first film photographs of sunrise over Earth. And that had never been done. When Yuri Gagarin went up, there were no photographs. He did not go up with a camera. And Glenn wanted to take a camera and film. And they worked out this little Ansco camera for him and he made those photographs. In Gemini, uh, Wally Shira had a lot to do with going from 35 millimeter to um, two and a quarter by two and a quarter, and they used the Hasselblad camera made in Sweden. And that company worked very closely with NASA in engineering the cameras. And that camera was used constantly during the Gemini program and Apollo. What's remarkable, it, it's a fairly large camera. It always astounded me at the quality of the, of the photographs made either tight within the Gemini capsule or out in space. Ed White's picture of, um, I think it was McDivitt photographed him. Doing right, the very first it was Jim McDivitt. Yeah, it was extraordinary. Extraordinary images. Clear, beautiful, 
and you know nothing was staged or mugged it was all he was taking the pictures at the moment he was deciding when to make the photographs there was nothing saying you know when when ed turns left and he looks at you have him smile and make a picture no that that wasn't the case it was all done in real time and that was the case for a lot of the um, photography and certainly through apollo having spoken to neil uh i think he was quite an accomplished photographer in his own right and he had a really good eye Alan Bean and Pete Conrad on 12, I think, made extraordinarily beautiful black and white photographs. They were a lot more comfortable. There was less anxiety because, you know, the first one, Apollo 11, worked. So they were exploring the surveyor. And then I think throughout the whole arc of the, of the era, I think each crew did its own unique way of capturing the moment. You said something there that I thought was really unique as to when we think of Neil Armstrong, we think astronaut, we think first person on the moon. Uh, Most people would never think of Neil Armstrong, the photographer. Talk about that because there aren't a lot of people that would recognize Neil as a photographer. I mean, I think the photo that he took of Buzz Aldrin that everybody recognizes from Apollo 11 is probably the second most iconic photo of the 20th century, if you, I mean, for me personally, I think the, the flag raising over Iwo Jima is the, the first one for the 20th century, but, and the sure. shot of Buzz is number two, but Neil Armstrong is a photographer. Tell us what that was a, what that conversation was like. Well, with Neil, we were talking about the photography, and he was saying one of the things that uh, concerned him during the lead up and the years leading up to, to, the, to the mission was that when I came to the surface photography, he realized, he said, you know, I, they were asking a lot for us to do. We only have two hands. And holding the camera in an environment where there's likely to be a lot of dust, you know, how do we do this? And he came up with the idea of putting a um, protruding pin onto the front of the, uh, the chest of, of the astronauts, and the camera could slide into that. And so when you see the photographs, that camera is essentially uh, resting or booted to the suit Block into that thing, just a matter of just sliding it off, and that was his. That was his doing. Uh, working with the engineers to have that happen. They were limited. I think they only had one film back that they brought down to the surface, and one camera, and that, and they traded that back and forth between each other. Between Neil traded that with Buzz and back, back and forth. I think Neil having made most of the photographs that are, you know, one of Buzz certainly is iconic. There are others of the spacecraft. Um, I think he was really seeking a sense of that place, given the fact that he had very limited time to do a lot. Yeah, not a lot of time to, uh, you know, change the rollout and adjust lenses on the moon, I would say. Um, no. And, and, and keep dust out of it. <laughs> so you you mentioned two other names there, and I, and I want to give respect to them, um, one of which was a phenomenal artist, Alan Bean. Can you share a little bit about Alan Bean uh, as a photographer and from a visual perspective? He was always fun to talk with. I first spoke with him was back in uh, 2003, 2004. I was working on uh, one of my first books, and uh, there's a photograph that was made uh, of the, the eclipse of the Earth, the, the, the trajectory of the, when they were returning from the Apollo 12 landing, they were heading back to Earth. They were, I think, 20... 30,000 miles out and um, I wanted to know the history of these photographs because they were extraordinary that nobody ever photographed or seen an eclipse of the earth from space right and um, the earth is going to go right in front of the sun and, and, and as Alan told me he said well they wanted me to 
break out the camera. We had everything stowed and we had a guess at exposures and shot this as they were coming in. There was a window where you could actually look out in time to photograph the Earth as they were coming in. Earth basically eclipsed the sun and you saw the solar flares around the Earth. So we had a friendship coming from that. When I last spoke to him, it was in 2014, I think. I said, you know, Alan, I said, I always, I think that, I think you guys made, I think some of the best pictures uh, on the surface. And he said, oh, it wasn't me, it was Pete. Pete was a good photographer. I said, oh, I'm not gonna argue with you, Alan. I said, okay, you know. Yeah, um, he was there. Both <laughs> yeah, they were both there. But they had, <clears throat> they had visual fun. They, they, they caught a lot of unscripted moments. And that was the thing that always stood out to me. And I respected, and I know a couple of shuttle astronauts that went to, got to know Alan, you know, looking for, I mean, he was a senior guy in a way, right? He had wisdom, he'd been in space. And you know, had a whole other crew from a whole different era coming in. And some, you know, befriended him. And I always, and I love the fact that he found ways of expressing that mission um, in paint. Let's talk about your photography career and some of the access that you've had. Photography is in many ways about providing the public access to something that they may never see firsthand. Now, you've had the fortune of working with a lot of different people in the space program to, to capture its stories. How did that access happen? Because it's not every day that someone gets to engage a Neil Armstrong or an Alan Bean or the shuttle crews. How did your access start? Uh, with a lot of patience. It was much of my work that I, I've done is very driven by exploring the well, the, the nuance of uh, obscure locations, objects, cultures, and trying to find something that is unscripted, trying to find moments of, of people in place. I had to cut my teeth somewhere in terms of learning the process. So I went to the Cape a lot, badged, and you know there were the protocols. This is where we photograph from. This is where you can set your remote cameras. This is where the crew comes out. There were always these things where you had the rope, and they couldn't go any farther than that. So these were the, if you will, the photo. These are the Kodak moments that we had to set up. And in the process, I got to meet a lot of the um, the wire photo um, photographers and folks that have done that for years, and they really did it very, very well. They, they made the best of the situation. But for me, I always realized, you know, I knew there was more. And it was a lot of no, no you can't, no you can't, no you can't. And I couldn't figure out the logic of why the no was the no. It's just how I'm wired. I got to meet people from um, executives. I thought, well, let me start understanding some of the aerospace industry. So at United Space USA, I said, you know, that was a combination of Boeing and Lockheed that were essentially the labor crews behind the shuttle. I got to speak with them and they start seeing the virtue of my having some access to to shuttle and what have you. That was back late 90s, early 2000s. But I think it took going, having lived through 9-11 here in New York, uh, we're only a mile north of, of the Trade Center. Having gone through that um, and getting our son out of a, a nursery, which is about eight blocks from the, from the Twin Towers, sort of had these moments where I started realizing what do I really want to do. And I got more persistent in trying to figure out ways to, to, to earn the access. But it, and really it began around 2005, the New Horizons mission that was slated to go to Pluto. By that time, the internet was trying to have an effect on, on media. A lot of magazines weren't assigning the way they used to. And uh, it was really challenging to get a project underwritten. So 
I figured, well, it's all being put at Goddard Space Flight Center, which for me is a four-hour drive from New York. And so I funded that myself, and I worked with the public affairs people down at Goddard and at the Applied Physics Lab, and I started putting together a story of photographing the spacecraft going through its uh, assembly. And that was really the first time I came literally up close to a spacecraft. I had to go into the bunny suit. I had to wear the um, electrical discharge band, all these things like that understand the protocols of working around the spacecraft, but I found it could be done. And then I met Alan Stern, who was the PI on the project, and that was really the beginning. Alan was an extraordinary leader, and he had the vision to realize what I wanted to do, and he said, what do you want to do? I said, Alan, I want to document this from the very beginning, and I said, it would be great to be able to follow this over the next 10 years. And he said, well, let's you and I work that out. And he understood that arc. You know, and we're all, you know, this is 2005. Nobody knew what 2014, 2015 was going to bring. My kid was, what, he was five years old at the time. You would think he would be 15. I mean, that was just, how do you how do you gauge that? And from that, having access to, and having him give the access to the scientists and the people putting the, the mission together was my beginning of portraying people on a mission. And that arc continued all the way through for the next 10 years um, and documented that. When you, tra- that arc, when you talk yeah. about the training for a mission, and again, 10 years is a long time for any particular project like that. Sure. But, and, and certainly an extraordinary amount of patience uh, associated with that, especially a program like New Horizons and going to Pluto. Now, but that's not the only access that you've been given. You've actually been embedded with a shuttle crew and to capture them as they train for a flight. What was that experience like, and what did you learn from it? A very humbling experience. With the good fortune of, um, Corey Powell was the editor at Discover Magazine, which at the time was was probably the the best leading popular science magazine we had in the country. He and the publisher agreed to send me down to Houston, because I said, if we're gonna get into this story and do it right. This is early 2007. I said, you know, everybody that I hang out with at the Cape say, you know, you've got to get the crew on board. And so I said, you need to send me down to Houston. And they said, fine, we'll send you down to Houston. It was my first, really, first time meeting a shuttle crew. And although I met Hoot Gibson and a few others um, sometime earlier, but Scott Altman, John Grunsfeld, and Mike Massimino were the legacy crews because they flew on the previous Hubble missions, and John and Scooter had flown on the one before that, so they had two missions behind them on Hubble. And they wanted to hear me out. I brought my work, I showed them what I do, like New Horizons, why I wanted to do a, um, a crew portrait, which had never been done. There hadn't been a crew portrait done by outside photographer since before Challenger. And I knew I was stepping on very hollow grounds here. And I said, you know, let's do this. I think there's history here. And I said, you're, you're, you're essentially the first and the last crew that's going to go to the Hubble. And they agreed. And they said, well, we'll get back to you. Lo and behold, and that was some great help by Mike Massimino and, and John and, and Scooter, um, agreed to the portrait session. And that really began the whole process of having the access to the, um, the training, which was up in, at Goddard. Uh, where the crew was training. And then um, then I took on, and then the Hubble director at Goddard found funding 
and they were able to provide a, a funding grant for me, and I was able to actually follow the mission. And at that point, the crew essentially had my back. I had my accreditation. I had the badging. It was every day was a journey. So essentially, again, being an in, embedded in, and I will say, unofficial member of that crew, you get to see them train for that mission. And certainly when you're going to go to the Hubble, you're, there's an awful lot of training as far as moving wires, instrumentation, panels, etc. But did you train them also in photography? What was that like? I did. It was, um, was kind of neat. I, had, I think I was talking to, to Mike Massimino, and I, I said, you know, I said, Mike, tell me about the quality of light when you're in space. And he, he kind of brought I wanted to ask him that question. And just looked at me and said, could you train me and the crew how to make better pictures in space? I said, yeah. I said, I can't. Technically, you're getting all that. I said, it's visually you need to do. Yeah, I can help you with that. And remember the public affairs officer looked at me. And she said, you, 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 can, you can have them take better pictures? I said, of course. Of course you can. So what kind of so, camera do they use, though, as you're, gonna, as you're explaining that? Uh, most people are thinking, uh, any photographer, you know, you're holding something up to your face to focus and then, you know, hit the button. What kind of photographer, yeah. what kind of camera are they using? So they use um, the whole Nikon line, the, the Nikon D, and they were emerging. They changed from film to digital in the early 2000s. Up to that point, it was always film cameras, as it was for during Apollo and Gemini. The Those cameras are simply... They couldn't look down in and focus. It was all aim, pretty much aim it and press the button. And that's how that's how that worked. On these, it was 35 millimeter. There were cameras used for in the cabin, and there were cabin. There were cameras that were insulated in kind of a, a material that they could take out in space. Those were pre-focused and set on infinity, and everything was preset. All they had to do was just sort of aim the camera and and, and fire it. I was more interested in helping them take the obvious that's around them because they're, the training is exhausting. I will say firsthand, it is exhausting. In the moments that we had together, we would have a seminar group. You know, the, we, we, I had two mantras. One was, we got to slow down and smell the roses, and they, they sort of smiled at that. And I said, and no flash. Don't use the flash because, you know, their instruction was just, you know, they, they want to make photography for dummies. That's how they wanted to do it. And my feeling was, no, you can make smart decisions and take pictures that are meaningful for you and I said, you know, Wally, Wally, I mean, Walt Cunningham had told me when he went up on Apollo 7 with Wally Shira, I said, your pictures are extraordinary. Why, how did you, what was your thinking behind it? He said, he said, for all of us, it was like we're making snapshots to show our family. And there was not this idea that everything had to be mugged or staged. It was found moments. And that's what I shared with the crew on how they could take the obvious in the cabin or whether they're out an EVA and, and find these remarkable moments and show us as though you're showing, sharing with your parents, you're sharing with your brother and sister, your husband and your wife, you're, 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 doing, you're making it personal. And that made a big difference, rather than having it all anonymous. Because, you know, we've gone through, and they agree. I mean, I said all the pictures before seemed, seemed to me could have been taken on the ground. There was no evidence that the pictures in the cabin of the shuttle, which is small to begin with, were in space. They put the flash on, and then unless you were to look closely and saw the hair going up, they looked contrived. And I said, you know, let's just stay with available light. So over the whole two and a half year arc of being with them, whenever I would come in or they'd see me, they would they would look at me and go, no flash. 
so when they after you train them in photography and they went up, okay, apply your critical eye. How did they do? They did very well. There was a certain calmness. They were so well trained that, that that everything they made everything look effortless. And I was able to experience that both because I was I was at Goddard in Hubble control when they docked the um, the, the Hubble, for example. Then flew down to to Johnson in Houston. And then I was in, in the Hubble Mission Control that was set up, and I was able to go between Hubble Mission Control in Houston and the back rooms and into the actual flight center where I think Tony Sakachi was, was a flight director. And seeing them in feet that wasn't being sent to the public, I realized, you know, they were, they were calm. I could see them picking up the camera when they could. And I think, I think they, they captured, they did pretty well, I have to say. And they, and they played. They really did. And John Grunsfeld, who was a photographer in, in his own right, was on his fifth mission on the shuttle and his third time out to the Hubble. And we had all worked out. Um, Scooter asked me, was the commander, for a, a, a page he could put in his flight book. And so I designed this 5 by 7 which would fit into the flight book, you know, with bullet points and things we discussed on what they could do. And one of the things I said to John was, you know, said the Hubble has a reflective surface. Why don't you see if you can explore making photographs, you know, of yourself or what it would be like looking at reflections, say, of the shuttle or Earth. I mean, you know, you're out on the arm and play with that. And he and Drew, that was his, you know, his, his, his partner, came up with some pretty interesting things. And, and, the, and I think one of the last pictures that John made, he was actually able to, um, well, he sent me some stuff he was playing with. They gave me email access to them while they were in orbit. And he sent me this email. He says, oh, what do you think of this one? And it was a shot from an angle I had never seen, showing the tail fin of the shuttle over Earth. And the only way you get that shot is being out of the arm and being in the aft section of the shuttle. So I gave him some suggestions, and only when they got back down to Earth and I saw the, um, the work, he had made a series of pictures showing his space suited. And it wasn't like you saw him, saw his eyes and whatnot, but you saw an astronaut, you saw a human being. And what was marvelous about it was it photographed, uh, it was about, not John Grunsfeld, it was about humans in space being reflected off of a telescope that gathered light of the ancient universe inside of a spaceship orbiting Earth. All that was in the picture. That shot ultimately became exhibited at Air and Space Museum and placed between two photographs of mine. Of the, I photographed the tools the crew was using and I photographed them as pieces of sculpture and the curators um, exhibited two of those tools as, as mural-sized photographs, you know, about three feet high, three or four feet high by two or three feet. And in between the two pictures of the tools was this photograph that John had made. What have been some of the biggest surprises that you've encountered on your photographic journey? So I don't think the story is really being told. I think that, for me, I immediately gravitated to the labor force. And that... And I got to know a lot of people and welcomed me. And, and these are, as, you know, as Miles O'Brien would say, they're, you know, they were salt of the earth. I got to really know folks that were um, working on the mobile platform, the guys in the white room that pretty much, you know, they're there when they put the crew into the cabin. Got to hang out with them and eventually got to actually go up. They're doing um, a, a countdown demonstration test. And everybody was on, including people in the shuttle flight control, Mike Linebeck, who was flight director, Everybody was fine with that, and I was just off in this tiny little corner looking at the choreography. And so of 
it was it was looking at that labor force whether it was up there working in the cargo bay getting ready for flight the training of the Hubble crew the hundreds of people involved in every aspect it was just like a beautiful choreography and that's what I was trying to capture I think that's what I'm not it surprised me it fulfilled a dream that I had going back to the you know the 60s that there was something that there really was um, humanity and I think that without getting hokey I realized you know everything here is made in America this is this is not a program that is getting its parts out of cereal boxes or you know importing stuff from different parts of the world it's all here it's all here in the US seeing it all come together I realized it felt like the Apollo program well, you made a point early on in, in, in our conversation about talking about the early photographers and the trust that they gained. And what right. you've described is you were able to acquire the same thing that you know your forebears did in getting that trust. Uh, not everybody gets the opportunity to certainly observe a crew up close uh, in uh, their training, let alone be a part of uh, some of the tests that, that you saw before flights occurred. So that's a credit to you and, uh, and and your work and to your point earlier about some of the patience that was needed to do that. Now, your work has been published in a book by Simon & Schuster and, it, and it's recognized, it, you've already mentioned it, at the Air and Space Museum and been exhibited in a lot of other galleries. So I have to ask as a visual artist, what do images like those capture? What do what images like those captured by the recent flyby of Pluto or even the recently revealed black hole do for your craft and your medium of photography? Well, the flyby of Pluto, and it is interesting because uh, Bill and I were, were in the um, conference room, huge conference room that was set up with all the uh, Pluto mission scientists on that that July 14th, 2015. And the night before, he came and, he, and I think Bill is extraordinary work, extraordinary work. He looked at me and he goes, what am I walking into? I said, really bad lighting. I used a few explicitives, but... And I said, you know, I said, I'm doing this technically because I don't want to work with flash, but I said, you may need to because of color temperature, you know, technical stuff like that. And... My, the focus there was looking at everybody's expression when the first picture from Pluto was revealed. And I had to, it was all game face, there was no emotion. I had to get absolutely, and I figure out where I was going to be and how I was going to capture it. So looking at the humanity of that, to me, pairs with those photographs that the robotic spacecraft was capturing. And, you know, it was, it took five, almost six hours one way for the um, signals to come back to Earth. And as the images came in, that to me was as extraordinary as looking at pictures sent by Huygens of the landing on, say, the moon Titan around Saturn or the Cassini pictures. I mean, it's, it's robotic. And so the technology behind that was extraordinary and worked on a, on a probe that's not any bigger than, say, a, you know, a small piano. And, and there it was, just doing this beautiful choreography and, and, and realizing the group of people that Alan had assembled, not only as scientists, but at, at the applied physics lab, Everybody, an extraordinary pro in handling every aspect of that, and made it all look effortless. And I knew it wasn't effortless. Since okay, you've been question. since you've been a part of though of the early portion of that New Horizons mission, how many people were there ten years later? A lot of the same, actually. Um, very few people 
you know, due to professional experiences, dropped down. I mean, I think a lot of the original team was there, and to look at them nine and a half years later, which is what I did in the portraiture, and some of that is was published um, in actually National Geographic published it online back in uh, before the Coverville flyby this year. You get a good sense of that who these people and the tools and background. But you know, Richard, you asked one of the questions about the access, of, and you know, the trust and patience is one thing. It's also that it's an engineering-driven business. And key to this was that engineers, regardless of where they were, understood that I understood their culture. And that going in, I understood that I don't touch things. And it became uh, totally, to me, saying, may I photograph this from this angle? Sure. You know, and it was always asking. And then they knew I was there. And it was just understanding whether it was being with the space shuttle or being within 24 inches of the New Horizons space probe or the Parker Solar Probe, the winch of the sun, the lunar orbiter, all these things, learning to be around these things, and that understanding the body language of engineers and realizing, you know, where I go, explain ahead what I want and why. And then it's like, oh, okay, because they have a preset. I mean, I'm not the only photographer that's done that, but I'm not, but I'm also the one that actually wants to get things a little more unique to be able to reveal to the public the awe and wonder behind human and robotic spaceflight. So that, I want to come back to the black hole piece, but I want to pull a thread on, on a piece that you mentioned there about certainly a spacecraft that like New Horizons as well, and, and the shuttle crew. You've been up close to both of these, essentially crews, they, they are crews. What have you learned from being embedded with both, you know, the human crew that goes to space and then the, I would even say, the spacecraft crews and even robotic crews that go ahead and explore space? How are they alike and how are they different? I think there's a lot of similarities because everyone has an expectation and understands what the goal is and everybody knows exactly what they're doing and why and it's teamwork. I mean, that's probably the one thing I may have left out is the extraordinary amount of teamwork. This is not about any one individual doing one thing and being an outlier. No, it's all extraordinary amount of teamwork. I was down at the Cape, for example, visiting um, the, the assembly of the Orion, and it was, it, was the, it was the same thing, looking at the choreography of working hand with tool and building a spacecraft. So when it goes back to, to both kinds of it's human or robotic, is the teamwork. The, if there's a difference, Emotionally, everybody waits for the moment, whether it's the landing of, of, of opportunity on Mars or the, the successful launch of a mission to first reveal a photograph, the successful launch of a crew into space, there's that relief that it all worked and it came together because there is a certain uncertainty to a, to a degree. There's a certain uncertainty. On the human side, it is human. It's, it's humans, and they're going into um, a spaceship, and there is a certain the risk was a lot more visible to me. And I certainly saw it on the crew in the last two weeks as it got closer and closer. And I was with them in the, in the suit-up room. That was rarely given opportunity. And I could see it on their faces. And, and interesting enough, the look that I saw on Alan Shepard, and that photograph taken in 61, was essentially the same kind of glaze and look that I saw on this crew. And they could do that because... I saw the NASA photographers, they were doing their thing, and, you know, the crew would sort of like all of a sudden, you know, perk up, 
But when I came around, it was like I was invisible. And they, they could be themselves and be vulnerable. Because it is a lot. And you look at the movie that CNN put, for example, on Apollo 11. You look at those shots that they were taking, 16 millimeter film now, in the same suit of room that they're still using to this day. And you can look at Neil and Mike and, uh, and Buzz, the same look. They knew this, this was it. This was it. They're getting on board. They're going to go on the rocket. And it's that certain sense of, like, destiny. And you're just going to do your mission. And whatever happens, happens. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And before I get to my last question, though, I've got to come back to the image of the black hole that oh, sure, we sorry. saw come out uh, that was issued this past April. And yeah. what an image like that does for your medium of photography. The way I, the, photo, the photograph was extraordinary and a long time in the making and a real testament to the um, science teams that actually worked together from many different observatories around the planet to get that one image, and I'm sure there's more to come. So what that does, what that image says to me, it provides a sense of awe and wonder for anybody willing to simply look at that and understand what it is they're looking at and why. It is also an image that, contr- that it contributes to and added to the history of the medium of photography. Photography is not even 200 years old. Remember, it was, it, it, it came, it was discovered 1834, 1839 in that era, essentially in France and England. And, and you look at the arc of that, I think the end of the anniversary is the year 2039, right? So you look at the arc of being able to document 19th century landscapes, sailing ships, then the Wright Brothers plane, then Goddard's rocket, uh, aircraft, the wars, jet aircraft, the first V-2 rocket, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This, to me, uh, replaying that, that picture of the black hole, is like looking at the very first picture that was made, I think, in 49. They, they um, shot up a, a variation of the V-2 rocket called the Redstone from the Cape. No, I'm sorry, from New Mexico. And it went up, and it was the first photograph taken uh, looking back at the Earth, suborbital. And I thought, how extraordinary. There's, there's Earth in this green, black, and white shot. And now, you know, nearly, let's say, almost 70 years later, you have the black hole shot. And I think it's just going to be the continuation of things, of images we're going to see that add to the power of the medium of photography as a means of revealing opportunities, events, that we can't, can't even begin to anticipate. That leads me to my last question is about what we can't anticipate. We've got Project Artemis uh, that right. wants to return us to the moon here in the next several years. And for that matter, after the moon comes Mars. I guess since you've already trained one crew in photography, what are some of the ideas that you would instruct the crew going back to the moon as well as Mars, what instructions would you give them to capture those experiences? The moon, going back uh, on the moon, gives us, we have a sense of, a, of what the playbook was like during Apollo, during those brief six missions over three, three years, essentially. For a different generation now going up, you've got folks that essentially were probably born in the 1980s, right? And they came of age uh, with Star Wars and Star Trek, Marvel movies, the whole CGI. And for them, my counsel would be to realize that what you're going to go through is nothing like the movies. 
and you're going to see something for the first time, as much as you may look at photographs, you're going to see something through your visor that you you haven't anticipated. And so what I would have them look at is to, probably the same advice I gave the, uh, the Hubble crew, is stop and just look. You know, look at your shadow on the on the surface. Look at where you, how your hands are. Look 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 at where your spacecraft is in in relative to a hill or to a crater or something. Look at the quality of light. You're going to be there for you know a number of days. You're going to see a lot of change as the sun gets higher and higher and higher. The stars are going to be the same as we see on Earth. Um, and as they get to go into nighttime mode, you know, photograph some of the twilight. There'll be a lot of Earth reflection. And there'll be enough um, exposure sensitivity to make probably remarkable images when the when they go into into the dark side into the dark mode. So a lot of that to me would be also realizing that they're humans, and whether you're photographing uh, your boot print or the tire track of your rover or the mark of your tool, humanize this. I mean, you know, humans have been only been able to express themselves in the last maybe hundred thousand years. Look at the caves like Lascaux and you know cave drawings. I said, make your cave drawing. That's probably what I would say. You know, write something. Write your family's name, like like Cernan did uh, when he was on, on seventeen. Forget, don't forget you're human. You know, you're yeah, you're a pro, you're an astronaut, but you're also a human being. And whether you're out on the surface or you're in the the module, you're in the the, the habitat where you'll be living. You know, look for the unfound moments. The the mug shots aren't going to work because then it looks like every other Instagram shot, every other Facebook shot. And, you know, where's the connection? There's not going to be a connection. It's going, oh, look, they're mugging, they're smiling. They're, they're throwing the baseball up and watching it float. I mean, that's, that's probably what I would counsel. Mars would be learning to whatever came off the years of experience of working, exploring, photographing on the moon. And once I think Mars happens, it's going to be a, another template to look at. And I think on Mars... When I get there, it's going to be the same thing. Being the first, you sort of do what Neil did. You know, you, you're, you're going to do your photography, you're going to look at your landscape, but look, look, look around you, look at what you are, you know, and, and humanize it. Michael, this has been an amazing conversation. Certainly, expressing the visual arts and taking them forward is something that the space community has done in extraordinary ways and you've been one of the people that have helped make that happen, whether it be uh, shadowing the crews here on the ground and I say crews meaning not just the astronauts but the uh, scientists and engineers who make all of those probes, satellites and robotic instruments possible. There's a lot more for us to do but with people like you showing us the way and to your point about look for the unfound moments and stop and just look. I think those are some pretty profound points to make. Michael, I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your gifts with us, uh, the counsel that you provided to crews that have gone to space and that have reached even further in space with a range of different instruments have really captured the imagination and the possibility of what we can do here. Uh, More of Michael's work is available at michaelsolori.com. And you can find him, uh, his work, again, published by Simon & Schuster in a new work. But then there are a number of other works that you will find that he has uh, 
on display at the Air and Space Museum and in museum uh, museums around the country and the world. Michael Solori, thank you for your time with Space for You. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for your time and attention. Please keep watch on spacefoundation.org. We have more Space for You podcasts coming. And as always, we try to celebrate the people who make space access and space opportunity possible. Michael Solori, who's joined us today, has certainly done that. And remember, because at the Space Foundation, we always have space for you. Mm-hmm.